0: Cut so this was uh, something produced five in Thailand because Malcolm and Wendy Taylor have been teaching the All Nations course. So um, while we do this, could we take up the offering while together. this is running? They've done a little two-minute clip because they may up with the Bloomfields we this week. And the they eyes of what does that mean for all of our lives? Okay, that saying that if what we do in one place, if that's it, and it doesn't flow out into the rest, then something's not right. Um, now, this is Nick's room, and if I told you that Nick spent all day tidying it, what would you say? (laughs) It it kind of depends on whether you're naturally a messy person or naturally less so. My wife is grinning at this stage because she knows that I'm naturally a messy person. But if Nick had spent all day tidying his room, we might say his heart wasn't in it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it was horrendously bad to be in with, and, and look, I'm not trying to, if you are a messy person, I will acknowledge this is my office, half of that screen over there, um, and I'll let you decide what that means about what my relationship is with tidiness, but the phrase his heart wasn't in it, it's something we say when someone just doesn't seem to be doing what they think. The early Jews had this thing, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love God with all of you. And when they talked about the heart, they meant the center of your being. Back in those days, the early biblical writers didn't have the same understanding of the body that we have. They knew about heart attacks. and In fact, in 1 Samuel 25, 37, it looks like they're writing about a heart attack. Yep. <coughs> but they hadn't really figured out that the brain was what we think. The, the, the brain is the thinking part. Yeah, conscious, all that kind of stuff. Um, they figured that all the intellectual activity that happened in you took place in your heart. And they figured that because the heart, that's where you make connections in them. They think that's where you make connections and understand. That's where you discern between good or error it's where you make sense of the world your heart was also where you feel stuff and so the phrase actually you know the phrase a broken heart comes from hebrew someone being broken hearted, they felt that you felt fear in your heart. Your heart could be depressed or happy. They thought it was your centre. And sometimes when they really wanted to talk further, because toilet humour is rude, but it is inherently funny, they would talk about feeling something in their bowels. Yep, so if you really feel something, you feel it in your bowels. But in the meantime, they talk about the heart as being your centre, and we talk that way too, don't we? <laughs> We know physically this is this organ that's pumping blood, but we talk about feeling emotion in our hearts. We talk about love as a function of what? All of us, but we talk about it as the territory of the heart, isn't it? This is how we think, even though physically you might say, well, no, the, blood's, uh, the heart's just something that pumps blood. And the problem with our hearts, according to this, is that we waver, that we're all on one minute and all off the next. So. Uh, uh, I have confessed, I will confess, that I am a naturally messy person. Uh, You could call it creative. I call it that when I'm feeling charitable. Um, And unfortunately for Linda, she's quite tidy. Um, And that means that that she constantly has to live with my messiness. And uh, on Friday, I had a day off, and I spent a lot of the day trying to tidy the house, doing what I think is what's required for that task. you could say that my heart wasn't in it, <laughs> but actually, I was doing it because I love Linda. Yep. So, actually, some of my heart was in it. Yes, ooh, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you were going to look at tidiness in my heart, you'd say that a lot of the time my heart isn't in it. Yep. And so it is with our worship. And in Revelation, there's a series of letters written to the church, to ch- a set of churches, that express good things about those churches, but also express caution. And we've let the guys who've written this series set the agenda here, and they look at Revelation 2 and a letter to the Ephesians, in which there's this phrase where he says, Look, I really appreciate your hard work, your stickability, your desire for holiness, and yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Anybody here want that said to them? I really don't. I really don't. So how do you avoid that? And what's that about? Well, the writer doesn't tell us what love that was. He doesn't say love for God or love for neighbor, doesn't say it. Oh, that was fun, wasn't it? But at its core, Christianity is about a love response. A love response to God. And that gets translated into how we deal with our neighbours, and it actually gets translated into our relationship with ourselves. Which is why that business of love, God, love your neighbour as you love you, they're interlinked. If one of those breaks down, it washes over into all of them. And again and again and again in Israel's life, that call to come back to the heart gets repeated so you get these phrases like in Amos when it says I hate and despise your religious festivals. That's like God saying, "Man, you guys when you get to go on Sunday, you suck." And even though you sing songs, I'm, okay, I'm translating as I go. Even though you sing songs and you bring up uh, look, I really do away with the noise of your songs. I don't want to listen to your guitars, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. They're connected. Our hearts and how we live wash over each other. Here's another one in Micah 6.6. This is pretty famous. Well, how shall I come before the God and bow down before the exalted one? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Oh, I've messed up that text, haven't I? Will the Lord be praised with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn? Any firstborns here? Feeling nervous? Fortunately, no. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Time and time again, Israel kind of gets stuck on this is our form of worship and forgets that actually it flows into all of our lives because our hearts waver. There's always a part that is desperate for God. And there tends to be, I think for all of us, a part that is not. Paul does the same thing when he writes to the Corinthians and talks about, well, look, I may speak really well in the tongues of men and angels, but if I don't have love, I'm like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And spiritual gifts, I might have the gift of prophecy, be able to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I might have faith that move mountains, but if I don't have love, nah. Over and over again, it starts with this. And worship is our response to noticing God's love for us. But we get stuck on particular ways of doing it. We're kind of used to that. In Revelation 1.5, the writer kind of tries to remind us, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, He's describing a sentence of worship, but also saying where it starts. The one who loves us and has freed us. So, I thought, kind of good, every so often, to try something different. All-age service, here we are. On these two tables over here, we've got Play-Doh of multiple colors.